Hey, I'm Eric Nelson, and you're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. I felt no fear. It simply became another race. We fear what we don't know. I knew what would happen. I would win the race, or I would be killed. There was comfort in the simplicity of it. Even though I could hear hooves getting closer, I felt no fear. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode 7 of 1883, Lightning Yellowhair. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan, and it was directed once again by Christina Alexandra Voros, who has previously directed... Can I tell you a funny story, Caroline, before we get on with business? Sure. So when the screeners first came in and the official description for this episode first came in, they all referenced this episode as Yellow Lightning Hair. The final episode was called Lightning Yellow Hair, which is what Sam refers to Elsa in this episode as. It was a little funny bit of business business just the early getting knowledge of this episode and then hearing them talk about it i was like why would they call the episode something opposite of what he said <laughs> but they ultimately corrected it everywhere to lightning yellow hair that's funny well if you like to talk about stuff like that come join us on the facebook page it's the yellowstone 1883 four sixes discussion and news group you can talk about 1883 and the whole universe of yellowstone shows and talk about wacky stories like that full of wacky wacky stories wacky stories things you're reading on reddit we were were one of the first outlets to report about the uh, official season five pickup Yellowstone, uh, which I don't think was a surprise to anyone, really. But what was news, production with the principal cast is set to return in May, which was interesting news. But also that Jen Landon and Catherine Kelly had been promoted to series regulars. Jen Landon playing Teeter, not a big surprise for your Yellowstone fans out there. Uh, maybe for people that don't like Teeter, that's not great news. But we like Teeter here, or at least I do. Uh, I love you. <laughs> Nobody, nobody doesn't like Teeter. It's just that she can be difficult to understand. And it's so can Sam, yeah, but so can Sam Elliott. I mean, I clearly, no, sir. Do not compare these accents. <laughs> clearly, Teeter is going to turn out to be a long, long descendant of Sam Elliott Shay. Like, oh, my. That would be a whole thing, wouldn't it? One day I'm going to have a, a, a long dead niece. Her name's going to be Teeter. We're going to talk about her. And then Teeter's going to be like, I used to have a cousin, named, you know, a great grandpa named Shay. That's way too clear. You have to <laughs> it, is, it is. It is. <laughs> but Catherine Kelly is actually a really big surprise, though, because she plays currently Emily, Jimmy's love interest, who one of the principal reasons he decided to stay at the Four Sixes. Interesting that she's getting bumped to series regular in Yellowstone. Maybe they're finally going to bring on that full-time vet that they desperately need to operate on all of the humans that get hurt and shot and stabbed at the Yellowstone. It would be smart to have that. So just a reminder that if you haven't seen this episode of 1883, please know we're not going to go step by step, but there are going to be spoilers. So please hit pause now if you don't want to be spoiled and head on back to your TV set and or computer screen and or phone, watch the show and then come back and listen to us discuss. Just when we thought we were done with brand new faces after getting Rita Wilson 
Quinn and James Gordon and uh, Noah LaGrosse joining the show last week. This week added two more new faces to the mix. We have Martin Sensmeyer joining the show as Sam, playing a mighty Comanche warrior. And then a little cameo by a guy I think everyone was a little familiar with. Good old Taylor Sheridan popping in at the end of the episode as a heavily bearded Charlie Goodnight. Did you recognize Sam? Did he ring a bell for you in the Yellowstone universe? Sam? Mm-hmm. Shoot, no. Sam plays Martin or played Martin on Yellowstone. He was Monica's physical therapist for that arc where remember when monica gets hurt and she finally gets out of the hospital she has to do yeah. like the, the pool pt yeah yes. and, and and has a dalliance with her pt uh her yeah. physical therapist that's him that is good old sam huh. sam gets to kiss pretty crazy, ladies right that's crazy but he must be friends with taylor sheridan because he was also in taylor's movie wind river uh, among other things that he has done. Uh, he was also in Westworld. He actually played a native warrior in Westworld for a couple of episodes. The big theme of this is that the storm is coming, whether it is nature or whether it is man. I think the show was pretty clear that they are truly out in the wilderness and at the mercy of forces. Man or nature are both coming for them. Storms and tornadoes come out of nowhere, wreak chaos and destruction, and then, you know, leave blue skies behind. Texas as a state is prone to insane weather of all sorts, and, and the Plain States in particular always get a lot of tornado damage. I can't imagine living like this, this where it's blue skies and then three seconds later it is is rain and destruction bearing down on you. That would leave me in a constant state of anxiety. I definitely was feeling anxiety during the storm scenes because just two weeks ago, we had a tornado that came through my town. And that is not actually something that I'm used to. I'm I'm in a southeast Texas, and that's not an area we get a lot of hurricanes, tropical storms, but not a lot of tornadoes. So North Texas, though, however, I mean, they typically do have safe rooms that are built into their home because we don't have basements. So that is a part of how to stay safe from all of the, the violence weather that is there and uh yeah so i mean i wasn't surprised about the tornado it definitely was stress inducing for me i mean i my eyes were like filling up with tears because it's it's so stressful to be in it. it it's truly violent and that that's something that while they did have some wagons being destroyed i was kind of surprised at the lack of destruction i, I mean i'm surprised nobody got killed it was really just their shit getting thrown around that was really the yeah, the major but- the major convenience beyond wagon destruction is you know having all of your stuff moved around but that's a huge part of what we prepare for um because we have you know hurricane force winds we put away all of the outdoor furniture or you put away everything anything that is not tied down you put away because having debris being blown around is actually the way people get hurt things come flying through windows things come flying the people get impaled that happens all the time like that's not crazy which shay teaches to joseph because joseph questions why he's having them turn their wagons in a particular way in the direction of the wind is coming. And he says so that shit doesn't blow you over and hit you and kill you. Right. So, but I was still surprised that there was no real injuries because of the storm. I don't even know how we can dance around for too long about Sam and Elsa during the storm. I mean, I feel like we have to go like kind of right there. It's not your experience when when a tornado hits and you're literally underneath it as it passes over you to grab the nearest hot man with you and just make out like crazy to to quell your anxiety 
I really don't ever do that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was really surprised. How do you even get through life, Caroline? I don't know. I mean, I understand there was a lot of adrenaline going on here, and that can explain a whole lot of things that happen in this episode. Just adrenaline taking over your body. I didn't understand this step for Elsa, and I didn't relate to it. Not as a woman, not as a young teenager. None of this makes sense to me. I was really happy with the tension between her and Sam when they were being far more playful doing this sort of like faux drag race and and you know all the little parts about her cutting her hair and all the little things like i was cool with that tension like it was good it was solid to go there especially she i was surprised she was even screaming i'm telling you when there's like again like that force of wind you don't open your mouth right like you would keep your mouth closed you would hide your face every other person if you noticed had their hands over the back of their neck that is a safety position because that's like a place you're vulnerable you put your face down and you cover the back of your neck so, so not mounting the guy not okay. mounting okay. anyone not having i mean again you're supposed to be as low as you can so already you're right. mounting someone bad idea she should be nuzzling underneath him not I mounting thought, on top of him. i honestly okay if we're gonna go to this place where it's gonna get like sassy with him i thought she should have like nuzzled into his neck and maybe put her hands like inside his clothes to like grab his physical body because that those kinds of things to me feel like actual survival instinct like trying to burrow your face as deep into something and trying to hold on to the thing that felt the most solid not just like a piece of clothing or something those things would have worked for me and could have even still been very steamy you know intimate whatever that scene was supposed to be the kissing i feel like your face would be like knocking teeth against each other like it didn't it felt like what are you doing and that doesn't even discuss the emotional like what are you doing when the barometric pressure drops and a storm is coming I, I, you know, the last thing I want to be doing is going out and kissing someone. I feel like my head is going to explode sometimes when you get like one of those pressure headaches, like your sinuses yeah. build up and stuff. And I imagine when the tornado is passing over you, it has to feel like a an invisible weight on your chest. So the only counterpoint I can come up with or the only narrative point I can come up with was tying it into what she says later to her father they've they've met up again and it's the first time they've kind of seen each other since the storm and he says that storm was hell and she's like oh you know i thought it was beautiful which of course she did that's exactly kind of who she is i i told you uh, before we started recording i felt like i could have written that line like of course she was going to find it beautiful so with that in mind that her screaming and that fear, that adrenaline, that adrenaline almost turned into, I don't want to say erotic because that's a bit much, but it turned into something that was sexual and charged for her, like literally charged, like electricity in the air charged for her. And she had, she was already feeling this meat cute energy with him, this chemistry with him in a way that she maybe has it with Colton or Wade or any other young man since Ennis. And so she was overcome by the moment, you know, the same way storm chasers get a high and a thrill of chasing tornadoes to get close to it. This was her version of that, you know, the kind of how she surrenders to the fates, you know, later in the episode that this clip, uh, this no fear clip that she has towards the end of the episode. I felt no fear. It simply became another race. We fear what we don't know. I knew what would happen. I would win the race, or I would be killed. 
There was comfort in the simplicity of it. Even though I could hear hooves getting closer, I felt no fear. I'd either be killed or win the race. I felt no fear. You know, taking your hands off of the horse's reins when it is full out galloping is dangerous. Doing so again when people are shooting at you, very dangerous. Mounting a guy and having a passionate moment with him when the tornado is raining down above you, it all feels kind of all of a part, right? She she has this... Yeah, but um, but kind of like a mental breakdown. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not encouraging it. I'm saying I'm not saying this is this is good advice. This is not like you know relationship sex column advice. But it, I think it's consistent with her character. This devil may care. What's going to happen happens. I'm okay with some of that part. Other parts just are silly. Like, I don't understand why you're going to go with James to go deal with the horse thieves only to be told to run away immediately. And then I, I, there is going to be no scenario that I understand making yourself bigger than you are when you're either being shot at or when you're supposed to be lying as flat to the ground as, as you can. Both of those things, it doesn't make any sense. You don't sit up to kiss someone when you're supposed to be laying flat. You don't put your arms out and make yourself bigger when you're trying to not be a target. Like there's some parts that defy logic in a way that I'm like, come on, kiddo, we love you and we want you to survive as long as possible. But at some point when you're going to get into these like dear diary moments, you're becoming grating. You have to be smarter than this. What if though, she doesn't care if she lives or if she dies? What if She's not convinced that she's not dead yet, which is are, are both themes that she has dwelled upon. You know, what if she is not okay? And I don't think she is okay following Ennis's death. I think she's still in mourning. There's a great little scene where uh, where the camera's focused on her face when Cookie shoots a cow to carve it up for dinner off screen. And when that bullet fires, like she flinches. You know, she's reliving that moment where Ennis got shot or where she killed the man. What if she has a, a, a not a death wish, but a, I don't give a shit wish? I guess, but I mean, I, you see what I'm saying, though. Like, be I do, consistent. I do. Why are you running towards a gunfight? Then instantly, your job is to run away. Like, pick up a gun and shoot the thieves. I thought she was going to turn and shoot at them. I didn't think she was going to play Titanic. Well, she was shooting as she ran away, though. I mean, she was turning and shooting. Uh, she had she was firing her gun behind her. But yeah, why did she leave the fight? I am Team Elsa. I want her to be a strong character with lots of complex ideas and, and giving a different point of view from the rest of the pioneers here. I think she's reckless with her life and safety. I think I think that's where she's at right now. I thought we said she's not a reckless writer she is a competent writer i thought that was verbatim what they were going to i didn't say she was writing her. recklessly i was saying her she's reckless with her life she doesn't care if she lives or dies that's what i think that clip was about you know i'd either win yeah. the race or i'd be killed but i felt no fear she's focused on different things than living right now she's focused on other feelings and other senses and experiences right now that just feels like way too off from being uh, in a, a survival situation and that is the whole name of the game and that is what we've talked about since day one is everything you have to do to survive then go down to the river and drink, you know, like if this is your attitude and this is going to be the character that we have to see for the rest of the time is just this like, I'm just going to do whatever I want and kind of lose my ever loving mind. Because then is Elsa's character a young girl's descent into madness? 
I, I, a descent into madness or just processing all of these new feelings and 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 leaning into the the rush that it, the chemical rush that it gives your brain when you live through something and come out the other side. There is a pattern here. The same woman who picks up a gun and walks into the uh, Indian raid in the opening scene of the first episode is not different than the woman letting go of the horses men are shooting at her is not necessarily different than the woman who mounts a guy and kisses on kisses on him when her tornado is passing overhead. There is a there is a consistency of reckless behavior with your safety characterization in all of those scenes. The problem is the audience has to buy into that. And has to enjoy watching that character. What we're seeing is a lot of blowback from audience members who are saying, I don't like this. I don't I don't like this. I thought she was a smart, competent girl growing into a woman trying to find her place in the world. And to watch her be reckless is also a euphemism for immaturity, naivete, a lot of other things that just feel like I thought we were growing past those things. I thought she was kind of finding her footing. We were we were all we were all supposed to be Margaret and James and let her go, let her be an adult, let her have these experiences. But this is like you give the keys to the car to the kid who got the license and now they just drag race and hit a hit a freaking school bus. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, like we were thinking you were you were grown and we were all trying to root for you. But now you're acting so crazy. I don't know what to do with you. Well, I mean, they already lived that right when they let her have a gun and go into Doan's crossing last week and didn't anticipate she may pull her gun on a guy that's what i'm saying is this some sort of descent that we're actually watching instead of this growth into a mature adult woman are we actually watching a very fragile psyche break i mean i think there's evidence to point to all of those things at this point i'm thinking back to that older man that we talked a lot about watching a western and i'm wondering a lot about our different viewers and what they're absorbing and how they're taking this young female character most especially moments like making out in the middle of a tornado like there was a lot of drama surrounding that storm that didn't need that sort of dawson's creek feel to it of like why are we doing teenage lust right now right now like is that the right feel for this second and i understand i really do get it that like some of the stuff that's going on with her it's inconvenient it's inconvenient to be on the prairie in the middle of a storm and feel lusty towards this hot guy right that's inconvenient so maybe life is just continuing on despite all these elements that she's dealing with i just don't know if audiences can handle that all at once like a narration of all these metaphors on top of the scene that feels like I don't know many people who would be acting that way in a storm on top of a really violent storm and all of our main characters being like completely panicked. It's kind of a lot to ask of viewers. It is well, yes, and and I think I think ultimately whatever they're trying to show about her psyche and her state of mind is probably being neutralized by a scene that people are going to be like, that's too much. It, it just didn't play right. It, even she it, feels yeah. like a poet's soul, that fragility portion. But unpredictable also, though. Yeah, I'm fra fragile, fragile and unpredictable. That is the ultimate poet's soul. I'm worried about Elsa. I'm really worried about her. I feel it's a well-written character in that I do care about her psyche. I do care about these actions that she's doing here that are kind of all over the place. And I hope that we're sort of congealing into a character that we say like, 
okay, I get it. I get how she could have really like lost her way and how she became so hardened that she can be so reckless. But I struggle because we have whole episodes about healing. It seemed like we were coming to a healthier place with all that she was going through. And I even I even myself took up on some of the advice and was like, man, that feels like a really healthy way to think about death and, you know, all these things. And then to just sort of have this really chaotic response this episode, I was like, oh, no. Let's let's stay with her psyche a little bit, too, because I think one of the things that engenders her to Sam so quickly is this conversation that they have right after she beats him in the horse race. Uh, you know, the first time she does the Titanic, let's go with the reins kind of thing, which she's doing there, I think, as a flex of, yeah, I can ride and I can ride better than you. But then they had this conversation about Sam and how he got his name. What do I call you? Sam. 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 That was the name of the man who killed my wife. I know because I made him tell me. And I killed him and took it. I think Sam struck a nerve with Elsa because he's only the only person besides Shay to kind of talk to her right at the point of her grieving and mourning and the feeling she's going through. And another person who has lost his wife, lost another widow, saying her parents are not widows. They can't, you know, appreciate her or, or empathize with her on that same level. Yes, she wasn't technically a widow, but we're treating her as such in the show. Um, so I think Sam got got like a fast pass to her heart a bit because of that aspect. I definitely think it was like a quick bonding for sure. Well, there's two things there. One is this idea that he he took he took his wife's killer's name, the the agency or uh, avenging that he feels like he got by taking, you know, I killed him and took his name, right? Which at some point is all a man has is their name, especially when they're dead. You know, who is that person? I don't know. Versus who is that person? Sam. You know, that's an important thing when you're dead. It's the only thing you have is who, what's your identity? And, and he says he took that as, I guess, a way to avenge his wife's death a bit but also then he says but you don't do that though you're lightning and lightning doesn't mourn because then you have you'll have to spend your whole life mourning a little bit you know rules for the for me but not for the kind of thing you know we've talked about with james and the immigrants and sam's kind of saying the same thing here but i think in a positive way don't spend your life mourning eventually you have to move on Uh, does any of that ring true for you the idea that you can't mourn forever struggle man struggle on that i mean i enjoyed shay's advice better about the feeling like that that they're part of your soul and they're always in there and you have an obligation to continue living life and having experiences so that your loved one can continue to to experience things through you i liked that better than all of this portion um the naming 
thing was fascinating to me because I have um, a deafblind daughter, and so we're a part of the deaf community, and there's a big part of getting your name as a name sign you're supposed to get from someone who is deaf, and it is a name that describes you in some way. Um, your name sign tends to be uh, have some sort of action to it that is going to show something about your personality. Maybe you have a really big smile or or you have curly hair or some part of you. So the naming of Elsa in this one was, you know, of course, very symbolic. And then everything going on with Sam's name, I also felt like in a way... Uh, it was fascinating because it was kind of like instead of taking on his loved one, his wife into his body, mm-hmm. it's like he took in her killer. He chose violence on a permanent way. Kind of. Yeah. Right. And so there was some real juxtaposition there between Shay's talk and Sam's talk that I was like, this is a lot more electric <laughs> to talk the way that that Sam is talking. In both cases, I think Elsa's an empty vessel, you know, when it comes to learning about how to grieve. So I don't think either advice is necessarily better or whatever. And, and kind of thinking of it in terms of like, you know, rules for Sam, but it's not doesn't apply to Elsa. He's telling you how he coped, but he's also saying it's a toxic way to cope. So you might not want to do that. Right, right, right. But we're still all talking about coping, you know, mechanisms here and how to handle things. What did you think about the fact that Elsa didn't actually ask what his name was before? For Sam, don't know. I thought about that, and I don't know how I feel about that because presumably they'll have that conversation. I, I don't know. Doesn't why Doesn't it she... feel like they should? Like it's kind of like revealing who you actually are like, instead right. of this armor you put up now. Right. I mean the the guy that Sam is riding with, his name is Two Feathers. Uh, Sam had to have had some kind of warrior name like that. I want to know, just curiosity wise, I'd want to know, but I guess they have time for that. Maybe I don't know, but he's writing off though. Like they're not going to, he's not joining the, the cattle wagon. I don't think it doesn't seem like it. it seems like he's just kind of, you know, says everything, everything the light, the land touches, you know, everything that the light touches is my land and you're welcome to this home. This is your home now kind of thing. I didn't get the impression that he's going to be hanging out with her every day. So I don't know how much one on one binding time, actual talking time they're going to get with each other. If she yelled that out in the storm, that would have been so much more intimate to me. There's a couple of other things we're covering. Maisel right now. Last season, Shy Baldwin reveals what his real name is. And even his manager doesn't know. And and he tells Midge that. There's these moments when you, like, reveal yourself. And, like, there's something about if she had yelled, like, tell me your real name in the middle of that storm. And he said whatever it was that could have felt so equally passionate and intimate and and personal you know like i'm not going to go out without knowing your real name you know in the middle of this storm the other thing a lot of people are pointing out that i kind of ignored a little bit was their huge age difference did that stick out to you at all no i think you have to give in this time in this era when you didn't i mean at at 18 you're already at midlife i i feel like age differences unless it's gross and acting and the person is acting in a gross way like um your grandpa daddy you know that kind of thing like i feel like age difference i mean i what's the big age difference here 10 years i don't 
I don't know how lucky she's going to be able to find another Ennis who is near her age. I, when this episode starts, right, they say that they've been traveling a week. You know, they've seen no existence, you know, no evidence of human existence beyond there's no animals. There's no games. There's no snakes. There's nothing but grass and no and, and bones, bones that are not explained, which is super ominous. But, yeah, there's no humans around. It's, it's not like she's going to be speed dating anytime soon. Well, there's Colton and Wade. I think Colton and Wade are a decent amount older than her. I would say Colton and Wade are as older than her as Sam is. Maybe so. I'm just pointing it out. This is I'm just giving you listener feedback. People are asking these questions. It didn't it didn't bother me. It didn't stick out to me right away. That wasn't my first concern. Mine was way more having to do with like, what are you doing, girl? Like, where's your emotional like IQ right now? Things seem to be a little messy. Let's talk about intimate moments because I think you and I always are are interested in the intimate moments between people. She cuts off well, she cuts off a chunk of her hair, which I got to talk to you about that in a second. And in return, and he says for beating him in the race, he gives her his hunting knife in the very decorative scabbard. That seems very personal, especially for a warrior to hand over to this woman that he just met. But then when they're riding on horseback. He's doing all the things that we were talking about we would have expected her to maybe do to protect herself in the storm. He's nuzzling into her neck. He's holding her tight from behind. She takes her hand and places it like on her stomach kind of thing, as which is an intimate act. Touching someone's stomach, I think, is an intimate act in that way. And then, but like presses into it as in hold me tighter. All of that seems very intimate, much more so than the mounting him and kissing him, which, again, I think seems more thrill-seeking and reckless to me, reckless with your life to me, uh, than those other moments. Did those moments work better for you as far as chemistry building and relationship building? Yes, yeah. It was like an electric friendship, you know, like taken to this like heightened level, like racing each other is very like flirty and sassy with each other. And then even the touching hands when they kind of rode past each other at one point, that's all I needed. I, I did not need it to go to this other place. And I think those moments were subtle enough, again, thinking about that older man watching a Western, that he doesn't have to care about those things. Like, it's just like, it's these really subtle romantic-ish moments versus like erotic, like you were saying about the storm kiss. There's something about that that seems like more the bodice ripper storyline that that, you know, we know exists in Westerns as well. Elsa has always had an interesting relationship with nature and how she's described it in all of her journal moments, her dear diary moments. This episode felt different in the tone and not so much about nature i think she's definitely still taking this idea of nature doesn't give a shit about you and i just learned that again but she's very down on humanity and this again she's seen death now she's seen death of a loved one so i guess it makes sense that she's changed but listen to the words she's using in this opening clip i, I found it very provocative the dirty hand of man can go unnoticed in the city because his dirty hand made the city. But in this place, where innocence is a mineral and a soil, the filth of our touch is an apocalypse. Filth is an apocalypse? Dirty hands? She's never voiced over with that kind of vitriol for humanity it's it's new it's new and it's dark it's a, it's a darker elsa it also feels 
very much like making the land more innocent, calling it virgin land and the men being so dirty. There's something about that where before it felt like nature was, was a character unto itself. It was like smart and savvy and it knew what it wanted and it was just going to like do what it wanted to do no matter what anyone did to it. And this kind of makes it feel like a newborn babe that like someone is like ripping apart or something like it's so much more innocent as the land that felt like a little like a little shift to me like i don't know man the land in this case maybe because of how the weather and the storm kind of attacks the land maybe that's how it sort of becomes the more neutral place is land you know uh-huh. as opposed to it having that really I, I always thought she was describing it as more as like it's beautiful but it's also like fierce like the water running can can kill you the you know the plants itself the animals the creatures like it had this fierce is the best way i can sort of describe it like it knew what it wanted and it was going to take it right and not not only is it not made for us but it will fight us when need be if we get if we interfere with it but for some reason now i felt like there was a distinction between the land and nature mm. like nature being this more electrified character that was like doing all this moving and shaking and forming and whatever and this time because again calling the land virgin i mean anything virginal you don't think of in any type of aggressive or anything other than just very subdued and peaceful and sort of innocent you know she never has described the land as like sort of this innocent she's always described it as someone's been here before this is the first time i'm seeing it but you know who has described it that way before and and has a newfound grandpa relationship with her? I'm going to say Shay. Shay. Is Shay one of Shay's motivations in addition to trying to get his wife to the beach is to see the land one more time before it's ruined, before it's settled. This is pristine land, virgin land. I mean, she doesn't use the word virgin in his when he's talking to Thomas, but he's saying the same thing she is. It's, yes. This is perfect land that's never been trod on before. And here we come, fucking dirty hand motherfuckers coming through and be like, we're apocalypse. Bleh, you know, and yeah. it's it's interesting. It's a shift for her. It's it's a very it is world, a big shift. it's a world weary shift. This is a girl who has this a woman who has seen shit now and doesn't think of it very favorably. I definitely think as an audience, you know, being in episode seven, we do need to pay attention to her feelings of like wonder, like, wow, look at this vista. It's just beautiful. And oh my goodness. And look at this water. And I'm like swimming in this water and everything's amazing. And then in her virginal white dressing gown, remember the christening Mm -hmm. gown that ends episode one kind of thing. This is not that woman anymore. I don't think she's going to be doing that. No, and I definitely think that appreciating the weather, you know, the way that it can come out of nowhere and sweep through and destroy everything and then just go away. I mean, some of the most calm skies are directly after the storm. It's creepy. It's eerie. I can tell you from experience where it's like, I can't believe everything was just shaking off of the actual rafters here. And then it's just silent and it's a blue sky and, you know, everything's done. It's unnerving in a way. It again makes you feel so very small. Like I can affect 
nothing, you I know? Think, I think the show did a wonderful job of showing us the storm coming. The Just the look at this episode. There are so many beautiful screenshots to be had from this episode with the ominous sky. The way when a storm is coming, it doesn't even have to be a thunderstorm, just a, a, a rainstorm, a thunderstorm, which I love. I'm, I'm a big, th- I'm a out in the thunderstorm watching it happen kind of guy. I love how it smells. I love how it feels. I like when your hair stands up a little bit on your arm because it's that it's that kind of storm coming love it so i think the show did such a great job of picturing that on camera and really making you feel like you were there as it approached as it ravaged and then as it moved on and it was blue skies the only thing missing from it were birds singing everything else was there as soon as the storm moved off and that's the chaos of nature and it's beautiful and it is scary visually it was very stunning they they did a wonderful job of of really showing you that that electricity in the air i mean when you can feel a storm coming there's something that's so frightening and and i'm not going to say it's not exciting on some level because it's like the anticipation of it this is like something's about to happen but it's not total fear necessarily as much as like for me as a as a parent you know there's this sense of like readiness like like come at me because i'm gonna like throw my best punch you know mm-hmm. like that right before something's gonna happen you're feeling... lieutenant dan on the prow of the ship <laughs> a, a little <laughs> they, they captured that anticipation they captured that oh my god we're about to be overwhelmed by this force that we have no control over they, she touches on that a little bit when she was talking about the the rain and the and the clouds holding the water do you feel like they are doing a good job with these metaphors and the narration do they need to keep doing this i love them i I love them because i they hit me like wonderful poetry about nature i don't know that we need them from a a narrative standpoint like i i liked her whole it was kind of again it was kind of like her her musings on kissing and how weird it is you know or there was another one that came up the next week after that um where you and i talked about like i don't know that that was really necessary i mean it's interesting because i think they're so well written but this idea of you know is the sky are the clouds you know are they alive if they're if they're making decisions about raining here and causing deserts there are they alive do they have thoughts do they have premeditation kind of in them it's interesting it's very spiritual it's a very it's a very i like it because i have weird thoughts sometimes when i am by myself and especially if I'm ever sleeping outdoors, there is something that she says about I can't sleep under clouds. Clouds make me think, you know, so I need stars to dream. If you've ever slept outdoors, if you've ever gone camping, there's something about a clear, starry sky that is very peaceful and calming. And and otherwise, sometimes you're there with your thoughts and you have weird thoughts. I think it's one of those kinds of things where you have weird thoughts like, why does it rain here? why do clouds hold rain like we all understand precipitation and science and all that but there is a fundamental childlike level where it's like why why here and not there why is it snowing now you know like it's those clouds have had that water vapor in them forever why now why here i i think those are very childlike questions that we all have kind of from time to time maybe don't voice them but so i like it from that standpoint i don't know that it is like the rosetta stone for understanding the show or the character not this particular quote but i think i like the idea of it again i think it's part of her character that they've done a good job of establishing it made me actually question because i'm a teacher and i thought about how often i've 
I've taught little ones about their water cycle. It, I really like wanted to look into that a little bit. Like when did people know about the water cycle and understand evaporation and condensation and all the parts to it? Like at what point? And so I actually looked it up and it was something that it's it's been going on for like a long time, like way, way, way back when, right? 500 BC. There, there was some understanding of it. It wasn't until John Dalton, who lived between 1760 and 1844, where they were actually able to correctly describe the water cycle. So as much as we're like, like might be thinking like, come on now, that's like from the beginning of time, people would understand the water went up and the water came down and all this stuff. But like, actually, it's not that crazy off from where we are in this story. It's just a strange little like, huh, I, because it made me feel like, is this something that no one was talking about? Like that they never, just from things like if they were farmers or gardeners, even at the smallest level, a gardener, you understand some, some sense of the water cycle, right? And so I know I'm speaking of that in a very scientific way. I know she's speaking of it in a more poetic way. But if it was actually kind of newer knowledge and accepted in a scientific way, you know, closer to when this time frame was, that made me wonder if it was one of those things that Taylor Sheridan putting in a little bit of historical stuff here or there actually maybe ran across that or something, you know, and was like, no, they really didn't know what the water cycle was until like kind of close to this time. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think there's value in that for sure. But and I think it goes hand in hand with the childlike musings, you know, because it's not even, even as farmers who probably understand the water cycle more than others in a practical sense, even if they don't understand it in a book sense way, uh, you know, there's still, I mean, there are cultures that, that believe photographs steal your soul, right? I mean, people, people believe things and, and it is passed down and it's part of their spiritualism and it's part of like their thought process and their musings. I don't think it's off base for her to have these kind of childlike wonderings. And I don't know if she's even being literal in this sense or if she's just musing in a, what if we're wrong? What if the border cycle is not really a science driven thing, but in fact is, you know, spirits who, 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 you know, bless us with rain or curse us with drought. Certainly, I, I mean, we know within the Native American cultures, things like rain dances and stuff like that, you know, praying for different types of weather, though that type of thing makes sense to what you're saying of like thinking of it in sort of more of a poetic kind of way, more of like a, a natural, not scientific per se, but like this sort of more like if you're good, you know, or like you deserve the water, like that type of thing too. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think it's something that if you felt like wanting to kind of think harder about some of these moments she's having, you definitely could. The narration for me, I really needed with her at the beginning, kind of like prologue to her, like, because we didn't really know anything about Elsa. Of course, we're just meeting her as a character. As we go on and we're experiencing things like, say, the thieves, like chasing her, I didn't necessarily need to hear inner monologue. I just wanted to watch her because I know Elsa at this point. Hmm. So I wanted to watch her actions and I wanted to see it play out. And, and that's something that I wonder as they go on with 1883, if they will continue. Or, I mean, of course, if, if Elsa doesn't make it through the end of season one here, then does that phase out completely or do we pick up that narration with another character? I mean, obviously. We get we get little John start doing inner monologues about chasing grasshoppers. Today I chase grasshoppers. <laughs> Maybe so. I like outside. 
Uh, I like, I love outside. Uh, you know, talking about the, the, the spiritualism and things that people believe, the show ends on an interesting conversation about heaven and hell and God. Again, all themes that the show has hit before, but kind of with a new, darker, more practical twist. Maybe even her, even Elsa pitying or finding her mother being a bit naive. Let's listen to this end clip. She wouldn't speak when we got back to camp. Wouldn't look at my father. Wouldn't look at me. I heard her crying by the fire before dawn. I sat beside her and asked her what was wrong. She said she killed a man over a horse. And now John was the only hope our family has to reach heaven. I didn't have the heart to tell her there is no heaven to go to. Because we're in it already. We're in hell, too. They coexist right beside each other. And God is the land. I didn't have the heart to tell her. That's a very dramatic statement for a daughter to be speaking about her mother, patting her mom on the head and being like, that's right, mom. Only John can get to heaven now. I didn't have the heart to tell her as if as if she's become more worldly in a way than her mother because of the things that she has gone through. That Margaret Margaret has now joined the club that Elsa had already be joined two episodes ago. This is part of the struggle with Elsa right now. That like if, if it's like how do you solve a problem like Maria? This is part of the struggle that is Elsa. She vacillates. It's difficult to have her muse about water like a little guy, a first grader would ask you like how does the water come out of the sky? And then be patting her mom on the head like yeah, killers don't go to heaven. This part of her and I'm and I'm just going along with it for the ride. Like I think everybody has growing pains, right? And this is what it feels like. Sometimes she's feeling really big and strong. Sometimes she's feeling very innocent and questioning and curious and all this stuff. Though. So she's still like, she's bouncing back and forth. And that can feel like inconsistent with a character unless you have this very strong border around her that says, I'm growing, I'm changing, I'm going from a kid to an adult. So some days and some moments, I'm going to ask very childlike questions. And sometimes I'm going to be braver than brave and wiser than most of the people around me. She jumps around on that. And I hope that that's okay with our audience. I hope that they can hang on to her, that she's she's growing and changing. So it's okay that this is happening. Do you feel like it's okay? Do you feel like this is just the natural course of growing? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's very realistic. I think it is every 17, 18 year old man and woman, you know, where they, they get a little bit of knowledge and they think that they know all of the answers. You know, they haven't realized that 42 <laughs> is the answer to, you know, the universe, but they think that they know everything, but in the same breath can be a child weeping in their parents' arms or, you know, having having a, a younger reaction. It's it's hormones and it's knowledge and it's ego and it's testing your limits and your boundaries. It's it's wanting to be held to an adult standard, but except for when I don't. Except for when I want to be held. Except for when I, I want to be I held. Wanna, and I want to be like uh, let off for things that I did wrong. You know, I want to exactly. be understood that I'm still struggling. People say, if you want to know the answer, go ask a teenager because they know everything. Right. 
Well, that's where she's at, right? I mean, but then also that like rental car companies won't rent a car until you're 25 because like they're not fooled that you're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's like a whole thing of like, yeah, the rest of the world gets it like that. You don't know what you're doing yet. Um, It's fascinating. My question to you is really more about the audience, though. Do you think despite the fact that, yes, this may be very accurate, is it entertaining? I think the show has been very successful with getting audiences on board with the Elsa POV. I think I think a lot of the concerns that we had about who's watching and uh, are they going to be turned off by this young woman's journey into womanhood and coming of age and all of those things, I think has not pan- has not turned into much backlash. I think for the majority of the audience, from what I see and what I read in the different groups and on Reddit and just reviews, I think everyone is very taken and invested in this Elsa POV-based story. And that comes with, I know everything except for when I don't. And I, I am untouchable except for when I'm vulnerable. Um, I, I was into this clip beyond the pat your mother on the head aspect of it. I was really interested in it because of the heaven, hell, and God is the land depiction. You know how I am about religion. I love religion thoughts. And and I think the show has always kind of brought religion and spiritualism into it all the way back to the very beginning of the series. I want to play two clips, one that you reminded me of, and it was a great hat tip about her musings on the land is just hell. At this point in her journey, it wasn't heaven and hell coexisting. It was just hell. Let's listen to this clip. This is from episode one. Some call it the American desert. Others, the Great Plains. But those phrases were invented by professors at universities, surrounded by the illusion of order and the fantasy of right and wrong. To know it, you must walk it, bleed into its dirt, drown in its rivers. Then its name becomes clear. It is home, and there are demons everywhere. Which is interesting, and let's talk about it, but I want to pair it with this clip. I think I have the right clip. Let's listen to this one from episode four. I had abandoned every memory of Tennessee as though I was born on this journey, but I wasn't. We were leaving a place and seeking another, and the journey was a necessary, miserable road between the two. Somehow I felt immune to the dangers of this place as if the land and I had struck a deal. I could pass unharmed so long as I loved it. And I did. I loved everything about it. The cross in the Brazos taught me there was no deal. No matter how much we love it, the land will never love us back. And she goes on to say in that clip, that is the right clip I was thinking of. She goes on to say in that clip that if she got to meet God, she would say, why would you make a land filled with so much danger that can hurt us and kill us? And then the final clip is, the final line is her saying, and then I realized God didn't make it for us. But now she's she's evolved here where 
God is the land. God didn't make the land. God is the land. He is he is present among us. And he, you know, Mother Gaia, he is the land, or it is the land. And heaven and hell coexist here. This is not just a place for demons. It's a place of heaven and purity. Uh, and it is also where hell and demons roam. It's very complicated, but it's an evolution of the character and her feelings on this journey. I think the show has been so good about always bringing it back and always mentioning it letting us know where she is in that evolution because that's also real right especially at this age you're forming all these ideas especially about god and death and your soul and the afterlife and is there heaven these are all real things i think that kids struggle with we all struggle with but especially at the age she's at now thinking about and having experienced death so close to her how does that all resonate with you when you hear it kind of all together it makes complete sense it is the time when you're trying to figure out where do i fit in and what about these bigger questions you know what is my purpose and what am i supposed to be doing and what am i how do i relate to the things around me the people around me you know just testing those those boundaries all the time and trying to figure it out. It's all very understandable. I hope, like I said, that for those people who come for the pure Western of it all and thinking about our conversation that we've had for like the past hour, we aren't really talking about the journey and we're not really talking about this this sort of larger Dutton storyline. And so uh, for, from that point of view, I respect wholeheartedly her personal journey. And I hope that maybe in the last portion of this conversation, we can try to put it more in the framework of the Dutton's overall journey and what these smaller moments might actually be doing to the rest of the group. I, that's a great segue here. It's, it's almost like you have the notes with me and you're sharing. <laughs> it's almost like we work together on this podcast. <laughs> you know, because, because if anyone has ever watched Yellowstone in the modern age, you know that the Duttons have very strong feelings about spiritualism and luck. I mean, luck comes into tonight's episode of 1883. Uh, determinism, you know, are, are we just pawns in this great cosmic game or are we out there making shit happen for ourselves? And there was an episode, uh, season two, episode seven of Yellowstone. It was called Resurrection Day. Beth and Rip, they were on the roof of the house and they're drinking and really interesting. Listen to this conversation because if you have any doubt that Elsa and Beth Dutton are related, I, I feel like you have to not feel worry about that after this clip. I remember the stories of heaven and hell in church. Lies, a lot of it. I think heaven's right here. Sells hell. One person can be walking the clouds right next to someone enduring eternal damnation, and God is the land. Whoa. It feels like there was some kind of pillow with it stitched on it that got handed down the last 140 years. God is, you know, that heaven and hell are both here. You could be walking next to an angel on the cloud next to someone with eternal damnation, and God is the land. Those are very specific and evocative images, all of it. Uh, and for for these generations of Duttons to have this feeling, I mean, right there is is Dutton DNA. Maybe it's not the journey, but it certainly is. Who are these people? I, I can't share any balmots of Caputo's through the ages, but Beth Dutton has something that 
a distant relative of hers said 138 years ago. Funny that you said that because you know that I believe wholeheartedly in DNA memory. I do. Um, and I actually do have that. Like, But it's different. It's a caretaking uh, little mantra that's in my DNA. My grandfather, who I never knew, apparently used to say, do you think you were born big? Whenever anyone would sort of be critical of a child that like somehow they weren't acting old enough or doing the right thing. And he was a trucker, like he was like a rough guy. But his line was, do you think you were born big? That is in my soul. And you know me, Mike. So you know me to like, have that sort of like curious, be compassionate towards other people that like, what do you think you knew everything the whole your whole life, like give that person a chance. Like that is deeply embedded in me. So I love that they have this like, through line with the Duttons that feels like they're always working on their relationship with the land and nature around them. For myself, I'm always working on my relationship to others and my sort of caretaking compassion towards others and kind of teaching that to other people. It's it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. And I, I love, again, this is something that Taylor Sheridan is very good at these these connecting these dots i mean the conversation about her you know this is hell and there are demons everywhere from episode one plays into this episode seven kind of line it's great i think it's i think it's really smart this the sentence you know from beth that he wrote 2000 i mean second season would have been 2019 you know we're hearing now come out of this great distant relative of his in 2022 we're hearing it it's just really smart and 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 i give him a lot of credit for it because it does make you feel like you understand who these duttons are as a people right this dn this dutton dna is strong and it it is it is passed down either specifically or just intuitively through the generations but i also like the aspect of it that is very tied to the Native American spirit. She's talking about, in all of these episodes, Elsa's talking about how people in the city don't have consequences for their actions. Out here where there's no law, consequences matter. Something, if you do the wrong thing, you're going to die or someone's going to get hurt. We have dirty hands and we are filth and we bring the apocalypse to the land. But the Native Americans are out here living with the land and sharing the land, right? All of those skulls, all those animals... Those are Native American-made skulls, right? Because they're the only humans out here, right? But otherwise, the land is untouched. The modern Duttons are the same way. They have so much in common with the Broken Rock Reservation, right? With, with Rainwater and his people in, in the modern-day Yellowstone. They, that's why John and, and Thomas Rainwater get along as, much, as well as they do considering they're enemies. Because they have the land at its heart and they appreciate what that means. It's very interesting to see that DNA is here. Sam and Elsa are compatriots of a soul in how they're approaching land and nature and the way it should be treated. It's really interesting. And 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 I think it's something that as the show goes on, goes on, I imagine we're going to see more and more of. This was really the introduction to Native Americans for 1883, right? They've they've been held over our head for seven episodes. This is the first time we've really gotten to see them. It's interesting. This is the introduction to them, right? They weren't attacking the wagon train. They weren't killing and raping the women. No, they, they took attacks and then they fought with them. They killed on behalf of these people. Yes, it made me think back to our roundtable interviews with Tim McGraw when he was talking in, in different conversations with different interviewers mm -hmm. about the the 
causes of death during this time. Right. And that so many people thought that it was really you were concerned about Native Americans attacking when that was like the seventh cause of death versus, you know, the river crossing and and just uh, falling out of and falling out of falling, your wagon, your wagon rolling over your you. wagon. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so I'm curious to see, given that information and knowing Taylor wants to make sure that he is sharing information that is more accurate than previous versions of Westerns. I would like to see how this will work out, especially given what we see in episode one in that cold open. Like if we if we've seen that we as the audience are set up to think our biggest concern is a Native American attack. Right. I mean, that's what we're being shown. It's a little bit like they have to they're undoing what they showed us and showing us that, no, we can work together. But also, no, we know it can't be because we already saw, you know, things so, to keep it right. And things to keep in mind, though, right? Because I, I think you're 100% right. Like, it's a little bit of whiplash. Like, we see that open, like that, uh, and Taylor, like that opening scene is in our heads. What are you doing to us? Now you're showing these compassionate Comanches that are fighting for them not and, and kissing and, and holding hands and, and noozling. So it's a little bit of whiplash. But remember, she's wearing the Native American braids in her hair, right? In that opening scene. That is a huge, that's a huge clue that there is going to be more commingling with the made of american people presumably in a peaceful way two sam has a very important conversation with shay and thomas that sounds like filler but in light of what you're saying i think we have to pay attention to they're talking at the campfire right before the storm comes in they're talking about the route and the state of the route and sam says wagons don't go into north kansas and wyoming anymore that's war that country is at war. And I think he means the Native American tribes are at war up there with with each other and with other white settler immigrants that are moving through that land. To the point he says, people take the train now. They don't take their wagons through there. It's not safe. He says, go to Colorado. Leave your people there. It'll be better for them. That's very interesting because we hypothesized that that opening scene is going to be near the South Pass which is about wintertime, which would explain the snow-capped mountains in the background, and it's in Wyoming. They're committed to this journey. If you're taking wagons up to the trail, you have to go through Kansas north into Wyoming and make a left. It's just what the trail is. So despite Sam's warning, they're going to have to go this way. So it's interesting that not all Native American tribes are the same. Some you're going to be peaceful for. Some just want a toll. Some are going to try and fucking kill you. And so so him saying there is war there, again, very specific word, very interesting word, and I don't think a throwaway word. And you can't say that they weren't warned. We can look back at episode seven and say, Sam told you, you know, he said that. And it addresses the audience members who are questioning, why are you not just paying, you know, a ticket for the train and and doing this in a different way? Our supplies are waning here. You know, we're down to the only eight wagons and, you know, two were salvageable past that storm that, that came by. We have 26 adults. We have 22 kids. I know that they snatched up some of the horses, although I know there's got to be audience members shaking their heads saying, why did you not grab up more of the weaponry and more of the horses? And I have to just hope that was happening off screen. And that we were actually bringing back 13 horses and a lot more guns. And and the cattle. Presumably, they were able now to rescue the head of cattle, right? All the cattle. Like, I'm hoping that we were actually a little bit fortified with some of that. And Cookie, how smart was he for taking off and keeping their food safe? That was a relief to see him come back in on the scene and that he had kept everything completely safe. Although I was teasing with you, like, I just don't believe, a, uh, like, the cook wagon is very quiet. Like, I totally believe that, like, pots and pans are, like, jangling along as 
as it goes. So I'm like, how did he get out of there without anybody really like hearing him? But we'll just assume that Cookie is just a very uh, smooth driver of that wagon. He's always packed and ready to go. <laughs> you have to be. He's part security, right? He he's not going to be the liability. He did. He says to he says, I figured you would be right behind me. He's like, it's not my first rodeo. I've been through the planes before. Right. I know when you see those cuts, you got to get the fuck out of Dodge. What did you think about Cookie's interaction with the Duttons here and, and the fact that the immigrants didn't understand how to handle this this cafeteria-style line? I, I mean, I love the cookie rules, right? Make a line. You got a fork. You got a plate. It's yours. You have now purchased that. You've got to hold on to that. And you owe me three dollars. I was like, <laughs> you owe, and if yeah, if you lose it, you owe me three dollars. Plus, you got to eat with your fucking hands. So you got you owe me three dollars, and you're not getting a replacement one. I loved it. It was great comedy relief. I mean, important to show Cookie's rules and these people again, once again taking orders from some other person that doesn't speak their language. Uh, just another talking head to to so many of them. Poor Joseph. Like, does anyone here speak the fucking language? And Joseph's uh, like, I do. Like not he's so, again. He's so <laughs> over it. Joseph was like, I wish I did not know English at this point. You know? And yes. so, yeah, so another talking head giving them more rules and then not understanding as soon as he gets the rules, but the Native Americans, you know, uh, Two Feathers and Sam, they get to cut the line. The fuck? You know, like, why? What? You're, all of your rules have caveats. That's like English, my man. I appreciated it makes no that sense. they said they were guests, though. That was so, uh, that was such a good explanation of like, there are some people who you just let go ahead of you and you just knock it off. But no, did you feel like that was a good way to remind everyone of the ferocity of Margaret and her desire to keep some decorum around her family? I think so. I also think it was meant to be a little bit of light relief. This is a show really short on good haha moments. And so I, I found this whole scene to be pretty funny and it made me smile. As someone who curses a lot, and particularly with the F word, when he says, you know, he's like, you know, don't use that word. He's like, well, fuck is a tough one to shake. And he's like, mm-hmm. get, get to shaking. I was like, brother, I know <laughs> it. Not saying fuck is a hard thing to shake. I would be in a lot of trouble if Margaret Dutton was threatening to stab me with a fork. Um, <laughs> but also, come on. You're not going to say the fuck around this kid? Like, he's not hearing that constantly? This is the, I don't know. I feel like, Jesus. It's the, the, the futility that Margaret is still trying to be a lady and still trying to have some manners up in this camp. Like, that's what was making me smile, that I was like, oh, this is futile, girl. Like, you are not going to keep the F word away from this five-year-old. Right. Immediately, he's like, what fuck mean? But (laughs) I love he's always good for that kind of thing. But, I mean, just thinking of the modern Duttons and the amount that they swear is just so funny. Oh, my gosh. That is funny. Could you you imagine John Dutton, Kevin Costner, John Dutton at the dinner table at one of those ill-fated dinners being like, hey, guys, listen. You know, Tate is young. He's just coming of age. We're not going to say fuck around him anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're not Beth using wouldn't that word. even say another word besides fuck at that no. point. She no, would just she say would. it. Friends, she'd be fucking it. Fuck, 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 yeah, fuck. Pass, like, pass, pass me the fuck fucks. And <laughs> yeah, there my, would be nothing. I take my fuck, fuck rare. That is really funny to think about. For those of you who don't watch Yellowstone, the current Dutton clan constantly is saying fuck. Like it is the word. I think Rip says fuck more than the. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with you. So to have Margaret, though, you know, that that trying to uphold some civility, my heart was like, poor Margaret. <laughs> also interesting cookie knowledge. And again, I don't know if this is going to pan out to be important or useful or just good lore building and world building. He knows that the Comanches like their their steaks rare. 
he's cooked for Comanches before, he said. And on top of the fact that he said that he's traveled the plains before, right? He's not just like a out-of-work chef, you know, from Doan's Crossing. This guy has worked the plains before and he's cooked for the Indians before. I thought that was really interesting knowledge because, you know, Sam says, you know, not too much fire on his. And I was like, my man, like, you got to keep all those juices and flavors in. Yeah, I want not too much fire on my steak also. But yeah, but then the cook is like, I know I've cooked for you. You know, like I like that about Cookie. Like this guy, he may not be a man of the world, but he's definitely a man of the plains. He's a man of the journey. He's, he's done journey. this. So we said that one of the episode themes was the storm is coming and there's nature, but there's also the storm is coming insofar as the people. Right. And again, in the for the second time in three episodes, we have thieves. We have these cattle thieves, not six, 13 cattle thieves trying to round up the herd. Was this too soon after the Ennis gunfight? Did it feel too repetitive to have another gunfight in two episodes? Or narratively, did it work with the theme of the storm is coming? From the standpoint of it's always something, then it's always something. So they did the montage of how so many people were dying where it was like, got bit in the butt by a snake, fell off a wagon, get run over, drown in the river. Like they've done it in a fast forward kind of way. And now they've spread it out over episodes, which is like, we got a second river crossing and we've got a, you know, it's like, it's going to be like same shit, different day on this journey. That is exactly what was illustrated in this. Like the second you get rid of one group of bandits, there's another larger group waiting for you. And you remember everyone we talked to when we did the interviews at the beginning of the season, every time we asked the question of what is the story about, what are the stories about across the board and in the Road West special, they also say this is a storytelling, simple stories, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. There's been a lot of man. We've seen all of that. But this episode in particular was man versus nature. Nature's always going to win. You know, it's going to kick your shit around like a like a pissed off landlord. You know, like, I didn't like that box over there. I'm going to go break your box and make Joseph cry. You know, poor Joseph. Guy can't catch a break. Is putting his little sad, his sad crate back together and falling in and breaking down. Poor Riza not knowing what to do for him. Like, <laughs> Joseph. Um, <laughs> like, are you are you crying over broken box? <laughs> My man, my dude, we've got nothing. Like, all of our shit blew away, Joseph. Why are you crying over the fucking box, dude? Okay, we have to talk about that moment of Thomas and Noemi and the whole, like, everything's broken, everything's mm. gone. How did you feel about that perspective there of, of, hold on, did you really lose everything or do you have everything you need? I have in my notes here that these people really need, and I thought they got it when Thomas and Shay went through and made them leave their cast iron stoves and pianos on the river bank i thought that they had gotten the perspective change of the all this material shit is really not what's important if you wake up in the morning and you're still breathing and your loved ones are still breathing and your horse is still there then you're doing okay thomas has got it right you didn't lose anything that you can't replace i've got enough money for the both of us which i loved you know and i love the fact that they didn't reveal thomas before the storm it was only after the storm that we saw he bunkered down with noemi and her kids and i love that thomas is full into this relationship he is he is pot committed to this noemi family that he's building here and says to her i've got the money i'm going to take care of us we have each other that's all we need that is such an important perspective change that these people need, but I think everyone needs. Like, look around at all the shit you have. Do you have your health? Do you have your loved ones? 
then you're doing okay. Everything else can be fixed. It made me nervous, though, when Thomas was saying it. It felt like a lot of foreshadowing Uh-oh. to be heading into a gunfight, you know, right after him saying, you know, you've got me and like you haven't lost anything because you have me and I'll take care of you. And then, you know, to watch those bullets heading towards our main guys here, I was getting very scared. Did you think we were going to lose a main character or at least get into a spot where maybe next week we were going to lose them? I'm not convinced that we're still not going to lose someone from this gunfight. So our three, our three main male heroes, Thomas, Shay, and James, all took bullets. Shay, uh, Thomas takes two, one in the leg and one in his shoulder. Is that right? Um, and, and Shay is, says, you know, they're, pronounces all of them to be kind of superficial. This is a time when I don't think you could take any of that for granted. Infection set in. Metal, strain metal from those bullets, those slugs. They get into your bloodstream. Sepsis, infection, things that modern medicine would be able to, you know, dress and heal quickly. I don't think frontier medicine 1883, when all of your supplies have been blown to hell, I don't know that they are properly equipped to clean these wounds. I don't feel like they likely had a first aid kit on them to begin with before the blowing away. Where were supplies. their Johnson and Johnson gauze pads? <laughs> I didn't see any of Where were this? Where was their hydrogen peroxide? Their their neosporum with pain relief? I didn't see it anywhere. In my heart, I feel like Cookie is the surgeon on call. Like he's going <laughs> to be the one that's going to have to do some bad surgery. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, but, but you do have genes there that, that will squeeze a bullet out of you like a pimple. So, ugh, gross. Thomas takes two bullets and, and I think got the least amount of attention for them. So I am worried about Thomas going forward because of the, your conversation that you're highlighting with Noemi of, I am everything you need. We are all still together. And you're you gonna haven't be fine. lost me and I'm here and nothing can take me. So we're good. Like that felt very Margaret. I'm not raising your child. Right. And he took the two bullets kind of thing and we saw the resolution of james's bullet literally out of his body the the belt the leather belt took most of it and then it just kind of nestled right under his skin uh shay you know yes got shot in the head but got grazed right clearly it was just like a it was a grazing wound what i know i know i know i know when i saw that hole in his hat as he was turning around i was like there's a hole in his hat there's a hole in his hat and then thomas is like looking down at his boot and i'm like no people look under his hat there's a problem with his hat like i thought i thought surely we were gonna see you know that 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 cliche trickle that comes out from your hat and goes down your forehead well i think that's what and, was on his boot i think that's why they were looking at the I boot know, at first. but it you know like, how yeah. normally you see that normally they would show his face he would look stricken and then you see the trickle you know and you're like <gasps> it's under his head credit to sam elliott he's such a good actor he you could hear in his voice getting increasingly panicked when he couldn't find where the wound was mm-hmm. he to the point where he almost laughs with relief when he feels his bloody head because knowing where it is is so much better than not knowing where you're bleeding from and and he does a great job listen to it again like watch the scene again like he gets increasingly anxiety ridden and panic sounding as he can't find the wound the entry wound on it it was a good scene good acting and for all of you watching who have never been seriously injured, I can say that and in my own side, I, I broke both of my arms in one go. Um, and I can say that shock and adrenaline are wonderful pain relievers in terms of just your body like super doesn't feel that pain. And so I was less inclined to question like, why don't they know? Like, because in most movies, you know, someone gets shot and they're instantly like grabbing at where they got shot and they're crying and they're, you know, holding it. These men though, I mean, this was such a 
heart pounding situation that I appreciated that. Okay. They couldn't even, they couldn't even do like their own once over. They needed like other people to be like, you're shot over here. (laughs) You know, like boy, bodies are amazing like that. Yes. I'm with you. I'm worried about Thomas now. Thomas has now moved into the not necessarily safe board for me. Sticking on this idea of man and man as a creature who kills There's a really interesting clip, and this kind of dovetails back to Elsa and her psychology and where she's coming from. I want to play this clip from towards the end of the episode where she watches Sam kill the men who are trying to kill her. There's horror to ever killing, even when it's justified. Even when I killed, I was horrified. But watching Sam kill, It's like watching a lion hurl itself into a deer. His fury was so magnificent. There was no time for horror. Not even for the men he killed. I questioned my mind. I wondered if I'm the one who is dead. And this is all a dream. I watched him ride away and decided I must be awake. I must be alive. And then it's a couple more beats and then she eventually adds. And so then I chased after him. But again... Like erotic with the with the t- being turned on at the death. I mean, he's a lion. It was magnificent to watch him take this life, you know. And uh, there's death in every horror. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm acknowledging the horror of it all, but also fucking hot watching him go to town on these guys. Because while she's saying that, Sam is fucking tomahawking that yeah. the hell out of a guy's head. Like, yeah. and she's just like, oh, the vapors, you know. And it's it's. It's a thing. Like, she's, and she does the am I dead imagery again. Yeah. Elsa's in a very tricky spot emotionally. She, this again, just to dove back to everything we were talking about earlier. That whole scene right there is kind of like fascination with death and very Emily Dickinson like, if you watch Dickinson on, uh, on Apple TV. It made me go back again and watch episode one, that cold open. And I encourage everybody to do this. You and I talked about it only in, uh, small snippets, but if you you really watch it. I mean, I didn't, I did not absorb the first time that one of the Native Americans scalps the woman who's running away. And you can see her like bare, not total brain, but it's pretty disturbing. Um, there's a lot going on in that scene. And I do want to like put my asterisks on here. I definitely was wrong about that dress that she was wearing. I was looking at it a lot more closely. I was watching it much, much slower this past time. And it it definitely has like a lot of fancy accoutrements kind of on it. It's like bustled on the sides. And she definitely has like pants that match it and everything. There's a whole thing going on there of a dress that I don't recognize. So for all of you listeners who noticed that far sooner than I did, and I was trying to kind of put it in with the rest of her wardrobe. Would you you say it feels like a a front? to your wedding dress then because that was the conversation that we were having about it it has this like brooch portion at the at the collar it's it's kind of like the female equivalent of almost like a bow tie like so it does feel like that formal i don't know if i think that it's a wedding dress it has little blue um i think they're little flowers um pastel little blue flowers on it which is like the juxtaposition of her blue dress with little white accents this is like a white dress with little blue accents 
I'm, I'm definitely going to keep my eyes open for that fabric, like watching in the future to see if like anyone anywhere is wearing that fabric and we could make some sense of it. I mean, we have Alina, the pants maker, so we know there's like fabric around. So I'm going to like keep watching for it. Um, but that scene in general is so explosive and destructive with the death that is happening. I honestly, did you remember there was a scalping in it? Not Elsa doesn't do the scalping. There is no, a, no, no. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's I remember a woman that. Who's yeah. running away, and 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 he grabs her Your hair. Thought, yes, and he takes her down to the ground. Yes, maybe? but yeah. I kind of thought he slit her throat. You know, like from one of those behind moves, but he doesn't. He scalps her head, and there's just these Wyoming. That it's at war. I keep going back to that to try to understand what they are setting us up for and what we're supposed to be seeing. So her her now highlighting Sam's killing and and us seeing that. I think that there is going to be some sort of desensitizing for Elsa to where mm-hmm. like the scene that we saw episode one, it doesn't play the same way as it played for us. Does that make sense? It'll feel like old hat almost. Kind of, because then she's seen this level of killing. Where she doesn't like, flinch. She doesn't flinch in that opening no. scene. It's, she's just going to work. I mean, the same way she tells her mother last episode, it's time to get back to work. You know, that scene is very much her going back to work, but of killing motherfuckers that are trying to kill us. It's mm-hmm. interesting. It's interesting. It's a, it's a different Elsa than start of the show, but I feel like we're moving towards that kind of ferocious warrior, this, this lightning of her own self. It does feel to me, a lot of times we ask each other, is it earned? Is it earned where they've brought this character to? And since they've show us what we can assume is near to the end of wherever we think that Elsa character is going, then we're starting to fill in much closer to where you could get to be the one who just stands and puts the gun straight out and just walk towards death. Like, you can get there from here well, now. It's a combination of, I've killed before so I can kill again, and every time you kill, it shouldn't be, but it gets a little bit easier. And also, this idea that maybe she doesn't give a fuck about death. If I die, I die, right? To, to, to quote or paraphrase Rocky Four, you know, you see all of that. Everything she does in that opening scene gels with the woman that we're seeing in this episode and this psyche and this, this state of mind and this reckless with her own safety kind of personality. It may not make sense or it may not feel right. But it is consistent. You know, I'm going to challenge our word now, because if she was a man, we would not call her reckless. We would call her brave. We would say she has courage. When we see a man rush towards a a burning building, we say, what a hero, how brave. When we see a woman rushing towards certain death, we think, oh, my God, does she not care about dying? Is she so reckless with herself? She doesn't understand what's going to happen. It's such a different slew of words we're using. And I'm not accusing you or me of doing that when it comes to gender. But I do want to start throwing out the idea that what is bravery and what is it to have been the person to to be the one to run away and have three people chasing you? What kind of verbiage are we using for that? I, what I'm referring to as reckless is in this episode, the mounting him during the storm and making herself bigger, the taking her hands off of the reins as the horse is galloping at full speed, the taking your hands off of the horse as men are shooting at you and giving up shooting back behind you. Those are rec- Those are reckless with your life. None of those are brave. Those are reckless with your life, man or woman doing it. Defending your family and shooting into a crowd to defend your loved ones and yourself that's brave again regardless of gender 
okay, what if it was a man who did the kissing during that scene? Would we say, how assertive? Unless he was getting on top of her to protect her, then I would say that is a brave act. Or, But I would have said that if she tried to cover him, then I would say, stupid, but brave. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, I think these very specific moments that I'm highlighting are reckless acts with your life. But I, I see your point, and it's true. I want to bring it up because I think that it's something that, again, especially young women, I think are especially painted as more empty headed. They don't know the consequences of their action when younger men can be painted as courageous and brave. And despite his lack of skill, he still faced down the killer kind of thing, as opposed to some people might even look at the Elsa you know, turning and shooting the the murderer of Ennis, you could hear words being used out there like that she was being emotional, that she was being impulsive, that she was being all these things where a man would have been avenging the death and would have been strong and 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 protective and like just very different words. And as we're kind of moving along, I do want to think about how we're thinking of her, especially because I think there's a lot of question mark about like, why did Margaret get on a horse and go towards where James and and Elsa were? Was that a good move on her part? Would we be okay if one of, you know, Wade or Colton did it versus Margaret? And is that a man-woman thing or is that, is there something else to that? Like, I kind of want to unpack it a little bit. It's a good question of if Elsa was a boy gone to fight thieves with his father Margaret probably doesn't get on a horse, steal Colton's horse and go and try and bring that child back. I think she's definitely playing the gender game and the and and that 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 whole action on behalf of Margaret. I was shaking my head, hitting my fall, like smacking my palm against my forehead. It drove me crazy. What are you doing? You're leaving your youngest. You're leaving your little son and the and the and the wagon uh, train. All of these people undefended you'll remember the last time that there were thieves and and Mm -hmm. they came back she more than anyone because she had to shoot and defend the camp last time it was a head scratcher because of everything you're saying if this was the first time it happened it would have been like oh my gosh you know she just the stress and the worry that she discussed with elsa like as a mother you know i'm not walking around generally happy and and cool i'm walking around worried you know and so that they set the little table for us about her letting the worry get the better of her and just going and and deciding that she needed to be part of this for me i was confused because of everything you just said we've already had scenarios a lot of different ones in fact where james is like i gotta go i'm gonna take off and i'm gonna go be with elsa or whatever right the two of them go or one i'm taking way. elsa with me and yeah she's- and two of them go one way and margaret stays behind so it was like what was the impetus this time to suddenly leave behind the little guy and take off like where was that coming from exactly a hot take that i don't think i i don't believe in but i'm gonna throw it out there just uh, for for conversation's sake is it because she's envious of her daughter which again comes up in this episode and has come up in other in prior episodes this idea that she wants to be next to james in the in the thick of the action you know getting her pulse racing and and she doesn't it, it's less about wanting to bring her daughter back by her hair drag her back to camp and more or I'm tired of missing out on all the good shit. I want to I want to have some excitement in my life. I will twist what you said just a little bit. I did see something flash in her eyes when I believe it was Wade said 
Elsa went with them because she said the safest place to be is right behind James. That little second is what made me think, you're right. Margaret knows that too. And so she's like, the safest place for me to be is directly behind James. That is the right place to be. It was just oh so weird when you have little John. It was kind of presented like she was going to go after Elsa. But you're right. There was that feeling of, I should be standing right behind James. To say nothing of the fact that Colton, <laughs> Colton and Wade don't work for the Duttons. They're actually, they actually work for Shay and Thomas and the immigrants. So the fact that she tasks both of them, and again, with, with one of those with your life, you know, and the unsaid dot, dot, dot is because I will kill you otherwise. Like those two guys should really be helping the immigrants circle their wagons and get their shit together to make some kind of defense if it comes. They shouldn't be, yes, it was done to be cute and whatever. And little John is cute and Audie Rick is adorable. And I, I love when he talks and stuff, but the two cowboys that are protecting the camp should not be off of their horse catching grasshoppers they should be gathering up the immigrants and coming up with some kind of plan like hey joseph grab a shotgun stop crying over your crate like we have to be ready to fight here that whole thing was just like where are our priorities what are we doing here we're just begging to be killed very head scratching and and again for those people who are really looking for the story to be more than just an emotional journey because there's times when it's okay to let go to the writing it's okay to say i'm just going to immerse myself in the metaphors and the similes i'm going to watch this woman with this beautiful blonde hair racing on a horse across these plains with these men chasing her and i'm going to invest in the emotion of it all those things are beautiful and I think are working very well for the most part for most viewers. When we get down to the nitty gritty of like, please don't put our characters in situations that don't make sense to what they do. Like, I don't want that scenario where you have 13 people shooting at four guys in an open field with Elsa being the fourth. So you can understand what I'm getting at, right? Like, don't put our guys in those scenarios. Don't, if you want Margaret out of pocket, please give her a more compelling reason, something that is different about this time that she's going to go after them. Please don't create the scenario when we know Colton and Wade never hang out at the Dutton camp, that suddenly they're John's babysitter. We need some mechanisms within the actual structure of this that allow for them to be changing like this. I love the story and I'm all for the things that are happening, but some of the moments need some different consequences or some different motivation in order for me to understand and not just have to say, well, they're just super lucky and they're great shots and the, you know, the thieves were on horseback, so they're bumping around. So maybe they just can't aim very well you know like i'm having to make excuses for why colton is playing with grasshoppers and i don't really want to do that right and and there are good story ways to defend all of that like you could you could handle it better and and here's the thing i don't need the show to give me cute moments i don't need the show to make me laugh i i can go watch reruns of friends if i want to if i want to have great fun fun moments like keep it real keep it dark i don't need chasing grasshoppers i absolutely don't i mean it's always fun if you can make it happen organically the even like the cookie stuff yes you know like that that worked and it made me laugh even that though was like this is totally not right though john is gonna hear fuck for the rest of his life but okay i get it and 
and she was trying to keep decorum. She's holding on with the last grasp of decorum yes. kind of thing. Fine. But this whole thing, I don't need that in this show. This is, this is, this is the, the, the dark underbelly of American pioneerism. It is not fun. It is not shits and giggles. I get that. I don't need it. So keep it real. Show me Colton and Wade trying to rouse these, these immigrants to defend themselves after they've been through this thing. They don't know where, what's happening to them. They've never seen weather like this, but now they have to also pick up guns and defend themselves. Take the two minutes of scene time and show me that instead of I want to catch grasshoppers. And even grab John by the arm and yank him up onto the horseback right. and have him be a part of the action. Show him because he has to learn. He's yeah, because what a what a what an amazing duality would that be, Mike? If at the beginning of the episode you have Margaret desperate to keep John innocent and saying you're not going to swear this is not going to happen, and have almost at the very tail end of the episode have have him be left by Margaret and be snatched up by the cowboys to have to go face it eyes forward on the terror and the action that is the the panic of these people like wouldn't that have been kind of amazing as opposed to allowing him to stay innocent grasshopper picking at that time like there would have been something really like wow this kid had to grow up in like 10 seconds you know like we just watched it happen yeah no i agree I agree. I, yeah. So again, and that's an. I mean, overall with the story, I'm I'm still happy with it. But then they do they make these choices, and it's just like mm, you're pulling me out of the story because I can find a lot of narrative reasons for why things are happening, and I'm always good for a devil's advocate. But shit like that just kind of is like mm, no thanks. But Margaret did have an interesting conversation, and you hit on it a little bit, and I wanted to talk to you about it because as a parent. This duality of, of emotion that she's talking to Elsa about, this idea of feeling sad because of these certain events and, and worried about your family's safety and their survival and the chances of survival, also feeling happy because of the same set of circumstances the the idea that like you feel a little bit crazy inside because you're feeling these polar opposite emotions over the same kind of set of information. It's it's a it's a thing that I don't think most people talk about a lot, but I think it's true. I think there are circumstances that come up in our lives where we feel like this sometimes. I was curious if you if that resonated with you at all. I think that the storm in and of itself coming, being so destructive, and then leaving and it being totally quiet make, gives you that I'm schizophrenic kind of feeling because everything around you now this is happening, now this is happening, now this is happening in a way that it's like, how do you even pivot as, as a human being with, with the need to process the things that are happening around you? I, I think for Margaret, especially, she had an idea of what was happening, but more than anyone, she's following in the journey as opposed to leading anything right and i think that's difficult for her right i mean and, that, and so maybe just... we're watching her try to take some some control when she decides to go off after elsa and james maybe she's like you know what for the first time i am not gonna sit back you know and take care of the little one i am an adult i and i can help and i should be there not elsa i should be there right i'm the adult right. who knows how or to maybe even let's even say with elsa the three adults should be out here doing this and the little one should stay behind really fascinating um you know i was just reading this article about how we have words for 
transitioning like adolescents um, and and we understand the different stages of life. But when it comes to being a mother, there's no word for what changes about a woman when you go from being a woman to being a mother as well. There's no word for that, that transition. And there's something about Margaret evolving here where sometimes she is being an you know a woman outside of her family and sometimes she is almost holding her family together like in the palm of her hand trying to like keep it together it's a really fascinating concept that that sometimes the story doesn't exactly delve into why margaret does the things she does but i think as a as a parent if you kind of look at it through that lens you can start to see like there's this intangible of wanting to be protecting, but then also needing to to be the leader and and be out in front and and do the things that need to get done. Very messy. <laughs> it's fascinating. For eagle-eyed viewers watching that gunfight, you'll notice that in addition to Sam and Two Feathers, there was another bearded gentleman that maybe was confusing you. Where did he come from? Who is this person? <laughs> Why is he fighting on our side? I don't recognize him from camp. Uh, and then when he comes riding up after the gunfight and Shane knows him, he's introduced to us as Charlie, played by show creator Taylor Sheridan. It was only a matter of time before Taylor popped into the show. And of course, I think because people know him so much as Travis on Yellowstone, they had to put him in a big, thick, woolly beard. They sure did. <laughs> what, did you th- what did you think of Taylor with beard versus Taylor without beard in Yellowstone? Oh, gosh, that beard was a was a big old beard. Uh, I mean, I think they did a great job with keeping that hat so low and coloring the rest of his natural hair to be, you know, darker. And he's playing I, with I, his voice there. He's playing with his voice for sure. He's giving it a little more gravel. I'm glad that we had talked about Charles Goodnight back of a couple of episodes ago. Um, he is the father of the Texas Panhandle, and we had talked about in in terms of the Goodnight Ranch and places that they could get supplies. And we said it was weird because that is so far from where they were in that episode. When Thomas brings it up as one of the suggestions, right? It's, it's yeah. It was Burke, like, why are they telling us about it, this? <laughs> Burke Burnett, Don's Crossing, or then Thomas says. Or the Goodnight Ranch, which is so far from where they were at that point, because it's it's way up in the Texas Panhandle to the west of where they were going, and uh, you know it's it's what forty miles outside of Amarillo thereabouts. Um, it's so weird. Then I like that though because they dropped it randomly, and here it's not so weird if they know Charles Goodnight. You know they're yeah. friends with him, so maybe it's worth making that extra trip to go out there. Charlie became a cattleman in 1856 and then a Texas Ranger in 1861. During the Civil War, he actually uh, he was part of the Confederate Army, whose job mostly involved guarding against uh, Native American raids on their supply lines and stuff. He eventually became kind of a mercenary who fought a lot of Comanches. That was like what he did before settling down to build one of the largest ranches in Texas at the time. Uh, him and his partner, John Adair, they eventually opened up a 100,000-acre ranch uh, that was known as the J.A. Ranch for John Adair, his partner. Charlie actually helped organize the first Panhandle Stockmen's Association in 1880, and that introduced this idea of purebred cattle and actually policing the trails and fighting off cattle thieves and outlaws. So it makes complete sense that he is a part of this back and forth because this is something that he was founding at the time, is trying to have some sense of, again, civility, if you will, um, back then. 
if you look at maps from this time and uh, the cattle herding maps from this time going from Texas into New Mexico and into Wyoming, a lot of times you'll see a reference to the good uh, to the good night hyphen loving trail. Uh, Charles Goodnight was one of those two people in that name. Uh, he he really established one of the main routes for herding cattle all the way up into Wyoming. Not And if you look at the map, it's actually very similar to the map that this wagon train is taking up into Wyoming or the path that we think they're going to be taking into Wyoming over to the South Pass. So Charles Goodnight, extremely, extremely important. Do you think he's going to hang around with this group at all, like very long? Do we, we do we get him for one more episode, or what do you I, think? He's very far from where his house is. I mean, the Charles and Mary and Goodnight Ranch is actually a house you could go visit still today. It is a national landmark uh, in uh, just outside of Amarillo. It was rehabilitated and like remodeled in like the mid two thousands, like two thousand six to twelve, I think I read. So you could go visit that ranch now. Amarillo is so fucking far from where they are right now. So. I don't know how much he's going to stick around for. My guess is he will pop in maybe occasionally like an avenging angel uh, as he, you know, as, as, as you know, I mean, what does he say? Killing cattle thieves is one of the West five great pleasures. Oh, so. my. Uh, you know, interesting that you called him an angel because there was a real sense of wanting to do right morally by these thieves that despite the fact that they had done the wrong thing, he was going to stick around and and pray and, and actually have a moment. It definitely harkened back to killing the deer in some mm-hmm. way for me of like, we're going to recognize the passing of life regardless of even if they are these, son of a bitches yeah, you know, even right. if they deserved what happened to them they're still gonna attempt to retain some humanity and not just feel like oh well death is death you know moving on i i respected that and i think that 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 is a really great layer to add to charlie goodnight and i'm kind of hoping that it, that seeps into some of our characters that are starting like miss elsa starting to feel a little bit like whatevs <laughs> life's crazy <laughs> Uh, by the way, it was a million acre ranch that him and John Adair set up with a hundred thousand head of cattle, not a hundred thousand acre ranch. So a million acres, you know, just ten times larger just than I originally said. Just a million <laughs> acres. I mean just- <laughs> that's how you get the name father of the Texas Panhandle. If you're wondering what do you need to do, you gotta you gotta, you know, have a million million acre ranch. Also, he's credited with creating the chuck wagon. So Cookie wouldn't even have a wagon to be getting out of the storm's way if not for Charlie Goodnight. Look at that. Charlie adding a lot to our... The world building. I like Taylor Sheridan. I I am always entertained when he's on screen. This show has definitely name-dropped real people, but to really introduce a real person into the narrative, I think is super interesting. It it definitely goes back to the trying to introduce people, and we said that it had to do with women for some of these, but trying to introduce people who shaped the West that people don't really remember or know. Like, they, you know, you really have to dig in some history books to find these people. They're, They're not going to be like the top five that anyone mentions. So so it's it's great. I think that you get the world building, but you also get a sense of who they are as humans. Like, I like that part very much. I want them to keep injecting some integrity and dignity into what is happening in a very sort of primal journey that they're having where they're just like literally, I mean, I, I can envision Faith Hill scratching at the dirt and when she comes out of the water and, and having that mm-hmm. just primal moment and to sort of balance that with, we're going to say words for, for those who 
to die and we're going to we're going to try to maintain some sense of of civility and integrity dignity uh, on this journey i think that's a great move on their part this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to the yellowstone podcast 1883 episodes if you wouldn't mind heading over to apple Podcasts. Spotify podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, but particularly at Apple and Spotify podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star rating, it definitely helps in promotion of the show and getting us on the charts and getting us visible to those podcast players. It would be great. And you know what? You should do it because leaving us a five-star rating is one of those five most pleasurable things. Killing Cattle Thieves, Horse and Sunrise from the Saddle, Riding the Wild Country, leaving us a five-star rating. Those are all things that Charlie Goodnight definitely says in this episode, and you should listen to him because Taylor knows what's going on. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.